Okay, hi, welcome back to our Why It Works podcast series with Robert Sharples and Joe Thompson. We're delighted to be back talking about EAL lead resources today. So whether you're an aspiring to be an EAL lead or you may already be an EAL lead looking for some extra guidance or you might just be starting out and need some support on where to go next. So hi Joe, hi Rob. And what should EAL leads be thinking about at the moment, do you think? Hi Helen. So yes, I think EAL leads need lots of support and lots of guidance. It depends on what you um, inherit, I suppose, in the situation that you have in your setting or in your school um, as to how established the role has been um, prior to you starting. I know when I started as EAL lead, there had been a little bit of work done at the school I was in, but not a lot. So I was very much at the beginning stages of setting things up. Um, And so that can be quite challenging and quite time consuming. But I think if you, um, over a number of years, can set up lots of processes and get yourself organised and embed EAL across the school, um, then you can set yourself up to be in quite a a valuable place after a few years, which I I hope is what I I achieved (laughs) in one of my schools. I'm sure it is, Joe. I um, I found the same. I can think it can be really overwhelming, can't it? Um, I was literacy coordinator for three years and then was given EL coordinator as part of my role. So if it's something that you're sometimes not searching for yourself, it can be even more overwhelming, can't it? So, um, yeah, even if, you know, you've got a love of languages and literacy, like I did and I was an English teacher, um, you know, there's not a lot of EAL training out there either and it can be hard to, you know, source those resources, can't it? Rob, what do you think is the um, important things that EAL leads should be looking at at the moment? Hi, Helen. Hi, Joe. It's a tough time to be an EAL lead at the moment, isn't it? The new inspection framework's stripped out almost every reference to your work. There's there's you know, new international arrivals potentially coming any moment, just as we thought we were getting a bit of stability over the past couple of years. I think you're absolutely right main things I would focus on is trying to get systems in place. That's the big change, I think, from being an EAL teacher to being an EAL lead. There's so much pressure, there's so little time. It's really hard to sort the urgent from the important. But if you can start getting those policies in place, getting the awareness out of what you do and how everyone can support bilingual pupils, then life's going to little by little get a lot easier. Yes, definitely. It's that... um... You know, uncertainty sometimes, isn't it? And that new arrival that might come on a Monday morning when you're not expecting it, that if you have those resources in place, you know, it makes life easier, doesn't it? It does. And um, it means it's not, it's not just all on your shoulders every minute, every time. If other people know what they're meant to do when a new pupil arrives, then it just gives you that bit of breathing space. Yeah, certainly. Um, all of our EAL lead resources come under adult support on the EAL section of the website. Um, so, Joe, do you want to talk us through? We've got two packs on there. Um, that are particularly important for EAL leads. We've got EAL CPD Leading EAL Part 1, Complete Pack. It's a mouthful. And we've got the one that's Part 2 as well. Um, do you want to talk us through those, Joe? Yeah, definitely. So these I have written based on uh, my experiences of being EAL lead. I was EAL lead for a number of years in a large uh, primary school. We're about um, 75% um, EAL learners. Um, and we had about 60-ish different languages. It used to change quite often. Wow. But um, around 60 was kind of where our average was. Um, and I used to, yes, as you just said, I used to have um, typically within a school year, I'd have between 30 and 40 uh, new international arrivals starting throughout the year, different year groups across the school um, with various um, levels of English. So... So these resources really are just what I've put together from the work that I did in school and the things that I found helpful um, helpful to me, I suppose. So they're two um, packs, just because there's so much in them. They both have an audio PowerPoint, which can be used, I suppose, as a training PowerPoint. It's just me talking um, through some ideas and some resources. So the PowerPoint's got the audio on, but it also includes within the packs different um, resources and different documents that we'll just talk um, th- 
through some today. So one of the things that's in there that I think is quite helpful is the EAL lead file. So as Rob was saying, it's really important to get your systems and processes in place. And this folder um, kind of just lists all the sorts of things that you might want to consider um, having or developing in your school. So it talks about things like um, your EAL policy, your induction policy for new arrivals. Um, is that different for EAL learners or is that the same for you know all new arrivals that your school has? Um, it's got a section on school improvement. So it talks about school improvement plan and how EAL fits into what your school is working on. Um, it's also got some action planning documents so you can help um, plan what you want to work on. And like Rob says, sort your, sort your priorities out, which it's tricky when everything seems important, um, but it helps to prioritise. I found that quite helpful to think, right, we're going to work on these two, three areas. We're going to do that across the school. This is how we're going to do it. And by writing it on that plan, um, it kind of communicates it to everybody. So that might be um, an important document. There's also some um, documents around EAL provision and how you might record that, um, audits that you might have of languages that children speak in your school but also your staff speaks really useful to have that kind of information to hand talks about assessment um, and the different assessment documents that you might have um, staffing and the different um, EAL members of staff that you might have within your team hopefully if you're lucky um, and a CPD section as well so you can keep track of people's training and um, the training that you've delivered, but also the training that your staff and your school have received. Um, so I hope that document just gives um, a focus for people maybe who are feeling slightly overwhelmed by where to start. Um, and hopefully if you can take those kind of page title headers or um, section headers almost, then that will give you a, a starting point for your for your folder and for your work, hopefully. No, that sounds really good, Joe. And I mean, it can be electronic or as a, you know, paper folder, can't it, you know, for other people to access as well, which, you know, is really good to get organised. Yeah, of course. I had um, I had it all on the network so that people could dip in, dip in and out. And it's really important that you share everything um, with everybody so that everybody can see what's going on and, and can be involved and can understand their role um, in that journey. I really liked on the action plan template how you had a real balance of big long-term goals and quite specific ones because I think the, the the draft text you put in there was definitely from your own time as an EL lead there is <laughs> JT to speak at this meeting so, so, yeah. <laughs> and I think that kind of detail is really helpful to get a sense of, of you know what you need to do and sometimes what you need to push your way in as well because a lot of those it's it's not really just about your role is it it's about how you fit into the school as a whole or to the trust if you're working across the world schools and, and getting a sense of who your, your partners are really in this. So getting a sense of this is what I want to do, this is why it's important to me and this is where I need to be across the year, across the week, across the school to do it. That looked like it, well, that looked like it was born of long, hard experience from this. <laughs> definitely was <laughs> it's something you can share with those you know your head teacher as well isn't it and you you know for them to understand where you're going with it and to work on it with them as well also, I suppose you could you know sometimes if you're not sure one of the hardest things is to put together an action plan the senior leadership will often say okay well tell me you know make a plan tell me what you want to do and it's really hard to know where to start with some of these things so I think a lot of the materials in the like the EL lead packs that you put together they give you a good starting point for what questions you might ask as well. So you could just ask, I don't know what meetings I need to be in for this. Right, okay, so where do I need to know? Who needs to, where do I need to be? Who needs to know about that? And I think you can start actually asking other people to help once you've got that basic organisation in place. And of course, if, if you have got a really strong EAL department already, then it's a nice way to expand and deepen the work. Yeah, definitely. Um... With part two, Joe, what extra things have you got in part two? So in part two, there's um, a top 10 tips for EAL leads, which I think is quite a useful just overview as a starting point. If you've not got any, um, you've not got much to go on and you're not quite sure where to start, it gives you kind of 10 top ideas that I would suggest kind of to think about first. And then like Rob said, you can ask questions around them, kind of explore what goes on around those areas already what is in place what would you like to perhaps see in place i think as well talk to 
your SLT because um, from my experience, EAL was always at the heart of what we were doing as a school and as a community, and they were um, always passionate about that, um, which for me was brilliant. Um, and how could I put what the school were working to work, uh, towards into, how could I incorporate that into my EAL action plan? Um, that was always really helpful as well. Yeah. I think the, the top tips are good. They're, they're not created equal, are they? Because some of those, some of those are things you can start doing straight away, uh, but some of them, they're, they're longer-term goals as well to start to start building towards. It's nice to have that balance of what's urgent now and you know what can be done now. Like putting up a world map display could be quite quick. Building a good induction process, building up staff mm-hmm. training might take a bit longer. Resource followers, but then. Things like celebrate languages, it takes a long time to, to build up that deeper understanding across across the whole school. I like that one. It also struck me that I've not met anyone in SLT, and forgive me if you're listening to this and you are, I've not met anyone in SLT who doesn't like a good rag rating. Like red, <laughs> amber, green. What we, <laughs> what's the first thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And I think Top, see, I've got a bit of a bugbear about top tips generally, and I'm not going to apply it to these because they're really, really good. But this is what led us to start this podcast, isn't it? That there was loads of top tips out there. But then how do you go beyond some fun activities for the coming week to build provision across the coming term, across the year, and, and across the school? And I'm, the reason I really like these top tips is that they give you loads of meaty topics to, to get stuck into. And I think you can go from there and say, right, okay, what am I going to do now? And how am I going to build this up? And, and to say, you know, staff CPD, well, we're going to rate that. We're going to go rate that red because we've got no budget for it. We've got no idea what we need to do. But it just gives you a starting point, I think, for those conversations with SLT are really hard because you often find yourself talking at, at cross purposes. Um, the, there's very little out there. It's worth remembering. There's just nothing out there. Really. Very little research and evidence. Very little... CPD for senior leaders on EAL. There's much more at a classroom, like what you can do with students in your class. And that makes it really hard. I think we maybe need to give people a bit of a break on this one because the, the, as you move into like leadership roles and leadership concerns, you're thinking perhaps about how do I how do I hold teachers and EAL leads to account for something that I don't necessarily know about myself? How do I plan a staffing strategy in a context where we've got a huge retainment crisis, retention yeah, crisis, little, yeah, and, really difficult. And, and you know, very difficult to recruit people, and especially that lingering COVIDness, very, very hard to get supply. How do I, in that context, set up a staffing plan that's going to build that expertise and support yeah. my EL lead? So anything that's using these these EL packs that allows you to just make life easier for the people who are going to supply the resources and the colleagues and help you set those priorities is going to be really valuable. And a, and a good rag rated top 10 list, I think, is a cracking place to start. Um, you've also got a language audit um, for staff in there, Joe. How have you used that in the past? So um, it's to see kind of, there's two really. There's one which is looking at um, an audit in terms of where do staff understand themselves to be? Where do they think they are in their um, understanding of supporting learners? with EAL um, and that's more to identify what strengths they feel that they have and what areas that they would like to develop and that gives you a really good understanding then of, of, of where your team are um, and what um, what common themes might um, you might need to work on. So I found that particularly helpful and just by having the conversation, just by opening, um, asking those questions and opening the door on those conversations leads to a whole manner of host of other things that came up and um, you know, actually, this person speaks this, and did you know that they can do that? And actually, I didn't know that. And then all of a sudden, you've got—you're not just on your own. Then you're in a whole community. Yes, you've built a community. Got, yeah, you have, and they've got—you know—you've got strengths all around you that you didn't, that you weren't aware of. So I found that um, side of things that was really helpful because you're as strong as as your team. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not you. You know, it feels like sometimes it's you, but when you look around in a, you know, in a school. You've got strengths everywhere, and you just need to find out what they are and, and play, yeah, play to yeah. those. So um, that audit, in terms of that, was particularly helpful. But also in terms of having a language audit, in terms of um, knowing the languages that are spoken in your school, 
um, by your children, by your staff. But also, are they spoken? Are they understood? Are they? Is yeah. it that they can um, read, and read and mm. in those languages? Can they write in those? Languages? Can they do all those things? What is it specifically that they can do? Because I think sometimes it's quite easy for us to just generalise and say, "Oh, they speak this language." But do they speak it? Do they understand it? Can they read it? Can they write it? Um, yes. How confident are they with all of those areas? And again, you need to know that for your children, but also for your staff, because once you find that out for your staff, that opens a whole another world of resources for you as an EAL lead, which is hugely valuable and something you can't you can't just do that on your own. So I think it's really important to inv- involve your whole school community and find out find out what everybody's strengths are. Joe, where would you start looking for? Kind of CPD and skills development. So as well as identifying what the strengths are, you're also going to know where some of the gaps are. Where can people start looking to start building up that experience in the areas that, that you think might be needed? I think look locally is what I would suggest first. I know lots of um, local authorities are still fortunate enough, luckily, to have their, um, they're called different things in different places, but mm-hmm. the support services that work with EAL children in the AL families I'd say go and have a look at what is available locally we had um, I was fortunate I had a, a really good network there I went to um, courses I went to training I sent my staff on training we had a local lending library that I could go and borrow resources from um, so I think look locally first of all see what's see what's in your area if you work across a mat what what resources do you have a, Again, across the map, don't just see yourself as an individual school. If you're working in a map, then you're in a really special place because you've got all of these schools that suddenly you can tap into that you don't necessarily have when you're, you're not working in that way. Um, so I'd look locally um, to begin with, but also look online because there's so much online that just... Since is, COVID, it's just yeah. amazing now. Is there evidence online? Every, everyone has seen the value of going online and webinars and conferences and training. I've been to so many free things that just weren't, they weren't out there before COVID and, um, and now they are. So I would just search, search locally, but also search, um, you know, nationally and internationally now. And Twitter's people. a good place as well, isn't it, to look for those sorts of things? Yep, Twitter, I think network, any networking groups, you know, join our um, EAL Facebook group, reach out to people that are in a similar position to you, because if you're thinking of a question or you're not sure about something, you can bet your bottom dollar that someone else is having the same kind of thoughts somewhere else. Um, so go to places where that you can find people that are in a similar, similar situation and just start conversation. And again, you know, as soon as you start talking to people all doors open and things that you've not thought of pop up and yeah it's just that you need to work collaboratively i think i think it's easy to think that you might be the one person in your school with that responsibility but you need to not work in isolation to look for people doing a similar role to you yeah i was um going to ask rob if you want to talk about how the el coordinator role can be expanded um within the school with Joe saying um, about working collaboratively, what are some of the things that we can do to embed that culture within school, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean you're spot on, Joe. It's all about collaboration, isn't it? And this, I, the, one thing we've seen over the past decade is this real fragmentation of, of the professional community around EAL. Um, what was once, you know, consistently held expertise in most local authorities is now really distributed. And we have lost a lot of people who are perhaps... You know, more senior in their careers, a lot of people have moved on to other roles or taken retirement. And because it's not in teacher education, there's much less knowledge coming in with with people new to the profession. So we're seeing we're seeing a lot of expertise is actually left, but it's still it's still there. It's just much more spread out, and it, it just makes it really hard if you're new in post. There's no single space, you, single place you can really turn. So definitely connecting across. Um, different schools and, and across your trust and with, um, you know, with region. Actually, now that runs a, a range of regional groups. I think they have about a dozen around the country. Mm-hmm. And they meet maybe once a term, but they'll, they'll all have an email list to, of people just in the same boats as you, but at, at all different levels of experience as well, which is really helpful. So I'd look there. Um, and yeah, the, there's two Facebook groups, aren't there? There's the Twinkle one. Yeah, there's the an EAL, EAL coordinators one as well, isn't there? Yeah. And loads of questions being asked on there. Just a bit of a roundabout way, I didn't really answer your question. Um, 
I think the only way to start shifting the balance in your school is to be connected outside your school as well. Because otherwise, again, it's all on you. And it can be a, it can be a really lonely, difficult place to be if you, if you don't have that supportive community. If you have it within your trust, if you have it within your local area, fantastic. I know not everyone does. So with that moral support and all the good ideas that come from it, I think the, the big difference is going to be um, almost like a, a conceptual one, really. Is the job of the EL coordinator, and if you have one, the EL team, is it to fix bilingual kids so that they look and sound a lot like monolingual kids and then they can be taught in the mainstream classroom? That's one extreme. Or is it that notion that every teacher is a language teacher? And actually we are because, because all children are still developing their academic language. That's very, very well established in the evidence. Um, all children are developing their ability to do things with academic language and academic text. Um, bilingual pupils, doubly so. So at the other extreme, you've got this idea that every teacher is explicitly focused on building the language abilities of all the pupils in their class. And the EL coordinator is kind of a resource for them as much as anyone, and maybe does some, some specialist um, support with kids with particularly unusual needs. And, and unusual is, is for your school. So what could be really common in one school that everyone feels really comfortable with could be really unusual in another school. Um, to, to give a like a broad example, um, in a school with a very multilingually diverse community, having a pupil whose experiences are really different, where no one else speaks that language might be quite unusual. Whereas in a school with very few EL pupils, having one pupil who speaks a given language would be much more what you do. So, so the EL specialist might be the one who helps with things that are unusual for your school and out of people's experience. And, and in that space, I think that's where you can operate as, a, as, a, uh, as an EL lead. And so it's about thinking, right, how do I fit in? Where are the needs of our schools and how far can I shift things? And again, the way to do that is to collaborate within your school. So I think the idea of having EL specialists, it could be teacher assistants, it could be school leaders, they could be teachers, they could be anyone. Um, and having EL interested people, those are big, heavy air quotes. So people who are really open to trying things out in their classroom, but who maybe don't feel confident yet about what they're doing or don't feel they've got much breadth. And they're people you can kind of build that team from. So you don't, basically you don't have to have people who are fully committed to being EL specialists. It could be that they're willing to, to test out a few things, to try a few ideas. It could be that they, they're going to use texts better to support noticing. Well, we know it's really important for, for bilingual children to develop their vocabulary. They've got to notice that vocabulary is different. And it could be a few techniques like actually just putting keywords in bold is a great first step. If you've got a few people who just want to try things out, you've got that internal network, even if you're the only specialist. And they can then feedback. Once you've got that professional community going, all these different things that you can try out from the super simple to... Um, the more ambitious, like, okay, I've got these people I really don't feel confident having my class, but if you help me with it, I'm going to try it. Once you've got people who are, who are confident trying a few more things, I think that's infectious. I think you have people talking yeah. quite excitedly about what they've achieved. You know, oh, I didn't, I didn't think I could do this. That spreads to the classroom just as quickly as people come in and go, oh, I've been sent another such and such and such a pupil. I don't know why this is my job and so on, grumping their way through the day. And I think having that internal network, which it, it puts you in a fairly lonely position sometimes because everyone's looking to you a little bit, which is why you've got to start by having that, that broader network as well. I think that that's how you really can change that, just by supporting others to take those small steps or even those big steps. Yeah, and, and that, that's slow work, but that really does change things. Yeah, it's really important. I think we had a working group in our... Um that I sort of set up as part of my role and it definitely felt more supported with that network. I think you definitely need that, don't you? I once, um, I once tried this. I, I had a, a couple of colleagues who, um, and you can, you can probably tell I'm speaking to you from the university now, and as we're recording it, it's lecture change over time and all my students are waving through the glass door here. <laughs> so forgive the background noise. Yeah, so um, I managed to persuade a couple of colleagues to like talk to me basically about language stuff for as long as it took to drink a cup of coffee 
very busy bus. Like, I'll, I'll bring some of this nice coffee shop around the corner. I'll bring the coffee. I remember begging the, the person in the coffee shop to make it extra, extra, extra hot. So it took a bit longer to cool down. That bought me an extra five minutes. And it was really about convincing them of the value of it because everyone's busy. And I think, you know, we talk in this podcast about, about why it works as well. And I think that's a really valuable part of um, of building that armory and you know, convincing others to be part of it. There is evidence behind what we're talking about here. It does work. But I think just like practical experience of success is really helpful as well. Like if you if you try something really simple and it works, you're going to try something a bit bigger next time. So it's I don't know. It's is it. What is, is it entrepreneurial? Are you running a little guerrilla campaign in your own school? Um, is it slightly evangelical? Is it probably a bit of all those things? But it's just knowing that, and, and you know, we know that lots of people are listening to this, and, and that means people have a really diverse set of experiences. But if you're the one who's experiencing that self-doubt and not sure if, if you can really take that plunge of leading across the school and, and convincing others to do it, I mean, I know, I know Jo and Helen both have, and Jo will talk about her experiences, but there's solid evidence behind it, but there was also a massive community of people doing it as well. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely worth trying. There's bit-by-bit changes. I think you've what you've hit the nail on the head there, Rob, is if you can talk about it and you've tried something and it works, mm-hmm. and then you can share that with a colleague in the staff room over coffee or over lunch, and you can get excited about that and then that's infectious well if it works in your classroom is it going to work in my classroom maybe i should try that out in my room and see if that works there and then slowly slowly gradually people are trying different things out and it's working and if people can see that it's working and then it's having a positive impact on their learners and in their classrooms then they're going to be more on board with trying new things out and i think it's it's that culture that you want to develop in your schools and so that everybody has ideas and is okay to try them out and okay they might not work and that's okay too and we can have conversations about why it didn't work or why it didn't work so well but if you can find a few things that are working and they're working across the school then there's something in that, that yeah we can, and it gets embedded we, then doesn't it we can develop and then we can write down and we can say right this is what we believe we've tried it we've tried it out we know it works we're going to um develop this as an idea and this is going to become part of what we do in this school and that's gradually gradually you're building those blocks and that's you building that that culture and embedding it across the school and that's a great when you're working in that kind of environment that's a great place to be working in yeah and you know lots of stuff isn't going to work as well yeah <laughs> I, I don't want to give an impression like you said Jen, in every walk of life oh no it won't all work straight away <laughs> but but you learn from the stuff that doesn't and and you know, that conversation about why things didn't work this time it's not about you and it's not about them there's so many variables in EAL you've got particularly complex pupils you know particularly complex fit with all, all things across the curriculum you know you the stuff you experiment with that doesn't work is probably as valuable as the stuff that does. I think definitely, and I think from my experience, lots of the work that I did with parents and carers would definitely fit into that category. It didn't work straight away. I had to work very, very hard at it. One of the things we did at my school was we um, set up some free English lessons for the parents and for the families. Um, and that was new that was new for our school and um it didn't work straight away and there were times where it was just me with the biscuits and the tea i was gonna say i did the same job i sat sat for a good couple of weeks on my own yeah i did it i sat there for a couple of weeks on my own thinking okay well that didn't work what have i done wrong how can i fix it but i also had weeks where i was turning people away because we didn't have enough space in in the room um for everybody that wanted to come and so you kind of hold on to those those moments um, yeah. you know, and the comments that I, I got from the families and the parents and the thanks and the gratitude and the appreciation. And, you know, that's magic. Then we had um, our parents learning with their children in an English lesson in our classroom, in our school. How fantastic is that? That didn't work. That's not what happened the first week. <laughs> it's not what happened the second week. But over weeks and weeks and weeks and years, that is what happened. And then... That's, that's a great space to be in. Yeah, that's yeah. a great space to be in. But also, you know, I, I can almost picture this. Um, so I think we're all familiar with this experience of standing in an empty room with a plate of biscuits and a nervous <laughs> smile. But I think the, the fact that it, it didn't work one week and it came back the next week, people will notice that. 
You know, they'll notice that, that you're committed to it, that you'll keep doing it with, and it doesn't reflect anything on you, does it? If people don't turn up for no. all kinds of reasons, they might not have, you know, word might have not their word might not have reached them about it. There's no critical mass behind it. There's anyone else who's going, and all these other things that need to be overcome. But putting yourself out there like that, with your lonely, your lonely smile and your plate of biscuits, <laughs> if if people see that that you're going to keep coming back, they're going to keep coming back, and and yeah, that's that's bravery, really, isn't it? That that's that's making yourself a bit vulnerable for something bigger, and I think that's. It's challenging, but it, it makes such a difference because you give other people the confidence that, that they can try something they're a bit less comfortable with. Yeah, you build that trust as well, don't you, with those families then as well, and you build real relationships with them. They, it was a great way for getting parents and families into our school um, and a great, a great way for them to just find out more about the school that, that perhaps they didn't um, understand or they were reluctant to ask. Um, but, but they knew me and like Rob said I was there every week smiling away at them and then they would come in and they would talk to me and then we would have those conversations and perhaps they wouldn't go to their child's teacher but they knew me so they'd come and speak to me and you know all of yeah. those um that familiarity yeah, yeah is is valuable and and hugely worthwhile um, we've got some questions from social media this week um from our EAL leads um We've got five questions, so I ask each question if you can give some advice um, as experts in this field and just see if we can help some people out, if that's okay. So the first one um, has come from Facebook, and it says, how many sessions in and out of the classroom do students get for English in international schools, and how are pupils grouped by ability or year? Rob, do you want to... um, Absolutely. We did a little, uh, very, very unscientific straw poll of a few colleagues in international schools, and, and it's really varied. So I think one of the reasons it's varied is because we don't know much about the, the needs of the pupils themselves in this example. And you know your pupils. So um, if they're absolute beginners in English, um, assuming that they've got age-appropriate education in another language, What's the school doing with them? So the evidence tells us the best possible thing we can do is keep promoting both languages through literacy, giving them lots and lots of bilingual support so that like a mixing deck, you can kind of fade down the first language a little bit in the classroom as English becomes stronger. If you have a strong monolingual policy, like an English only policy in your school, and this is not unheard of in a lot of um, international schools, then, then that's going to be a lot harder because you're, you're putting that block on saying that they can't access their existing learning until their English has picked up a little bit. And that's going to change the amount of time they have um, in withdrawal or with um, pushing classes. It also depends a lot on how the school treats um, Yale support because, of course, in the international sector, that's often a paid-for add-on, um, and how they treat mother tongue support or home language support, as it's variously called. So I think the thing to, to go for here is um, same principles as always. Being in, in an international school doesn't massively change things. Um, try and get pupils into the mainstream classroom as quickly as possible and see what you can do to support the teacher to support those pupils. So all the things we would usually do about trying to make the text that we use, particularly in classroom and the classroom language, particularly the instructional language, to make that as accessible as possible. We might want to translate um, instructions, give lots of support around that. We might want to help people do key questions, pre-teach key content bilingually, all the kind of things we might do for any pupil that would help them to stay in the classroom. And if we really, really can't, or if the teacher really, really won't, which is occasionally the case, then we're looking at um, withdrawal that should be as short as possible, it should be time limited, so you should say in advance, like, how long is this withdrawal support going to be? What are our goals? So it should have specific goals attached. And what resources are we putting in place? And the big resources that you're going to need is the input of the subject teacher or the home teacher, home room teacher, class teacher. That is to say that it's, it doesn't become an English-only withdrawal session, that it's about a language-focused but still, you know, subject class. So um, one way to think of this is a continuum. You have what we might call pure subject teaching on one end, but language rich, 
And on the other end, you've got pure language teaching, but still subject rich. So still using materials and examples wherever possible from, um, from their main subjects. And you want to vary along that continuum. The more the pupils can go into the classroom with language support, the better. Um, the only exception that is pupils who arrive in school with no English in an English um, uh, medium system. And, and that's where you're perhaps going to have to do um, a very short, well-defined course in everyday English so that they can actually operate in the school. But just bear in mind that, that, um, that EAL teachers are not terribly well-placed to do that because most of that social language they're going to get from their peers. So you should be thinking about, okay, what can I give them there that's going to allow them to get into those peer interactions, to have friends to play, um, and so on. Now, um, Hampshire MTAS are worth a mention here, and Helen, perhaps we could put a link to their resources in. Yes, the, definitely. After. So that's the, the Ethnic Minority and Travel Achievement Service of Hampshire Local Authority in England. They've put together something that I'm always recommending, which is the Young Interpreters Scheme. The Young Interpreter Scheme is brilliant because it's not about interpreting or translating the language, it's about um, interpreting the school. So you have pupils who don't necessarily speak the same language, but who are assigned as interpreters to, to bilingual new arrivals. That's a real example of how you can take advantage of that social language that happens. Uh, actually, an awful lot of, of getting to know your way around the school is, is not necessarily about language, but knowing what to be where, who does what. Um, and, you know, like, if you want to play football, who's who plays football, for example? These are, like, important parts of the social life of the school. Um, the, the monolingual pupils and pupils who speak other languages can really help you navigate that as well. So I'd say Young Interpreter Scheme is great for helping to boost your work on that immediate operate, I won't call it survival English, um, but, but like get started in the school and then as soon as possible, let's start trying to um, support teachers to have those children in the mainstream class. The, the short answer though, is, as I said before, it's hugely varied because of the differing needs of the pupils, but also the international sector. We've got much more widely varying language policies as well. So continue as usual, all the same rules apply, all the same guidelines apply, um, and do what's right for you and your pupils. I'll definitely um, second the Young Interpreter Scheme. It's fantastic. We used it in our school. Have you used it before, Joe? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it is yeah, good, it's isn't it? incredible, yeah. Um, thank you, Rob. A brilliant answer. Um, question two has come from um, Judith from our Facebook group, and she says, in terms of resources, getting age-appropriate beginner resources is very time-consuming. The images are too young for year 10 and 11, new to English students in school. How do the experts suggest resolving this other than buying a course book? So I identify with this, Judith, definitely. I found this a massive struggle um, and I was mostly working in primary and I had the same thing. I remember I had a boy in year six um, and he didn't want to be seeing the things that looked like they came from key stage one or from nursery. He wanted to be seeing things that looked like... Um, year six should have in front of them so uh what we have is we have an older learners category within our eal category uh on the twinkle website which um contains resources that have been specifically designed with older learners in mind so the content might be more at a, a beginner level but the design of them has been specifically done for older learners. So hopefully those kind of resources are the resources that you'd be wanting to see um, and access and that those would be more appropriate to your pupils. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm going to be launching a older learners Pinterest board um, on Friday. So that's with the resources off site and any other older learners resources um, and ideas that might be useful to share. Um, which hopefully will be helpful. And we've also got an option on Twinkle to recommend resources or ask for resources to be created. So if there is anything you are looking for um, that's not on site, then that can be done through Twinkle Cares. Do you know, just like, just on the off chance that someone's listening from one of the major publishers, because I've had this conversation on and off for years, there's just not enough things like graded readers for older learners that actually reflect, you know, older children, you know, people's interests. Um, so I think this is a great, as you say, a great one to crowdsource and, and see if there's um, resources that, come, that people have come across. 
um, if anyone's listening and is in a position to do anything about it, I think it'd be so valuable. And the message I've had from, like, from publishers again and again is they don't think there's a market. They can see graded readers in like the EFL teaching foreign language uh, to children overseas primarily um, market. But because kids are going through school and studying English in school, that they're usually at a different stage of their reading in English by the time they get to the older level. So, yes. so they, the beginners but older doesn't really fit with the EFL market. Um, and I think in the, the EAL domain, there's a huge need, but but no one huge will believe it. Yeah, I think this is, you know, this is the place where that message can, can come through. And I also wonder that something that can be useful is if you have a um, if you have a kind of basic routine or worksheet, and maybe we could put one together for how to adopt how to adapt any text that um, students are reading. Which could be, you know, it could be magazines. It's likely to be online. Um, it could be books if there's books they um, they enjoy. Um, about the kind of questions and the kind of activities that students can do, um, then that can be adapted really widely. It doesn't have to be prepared for a specific book. So one thing that's really really helpful, um, although not normally that popular with students, is is getting people to write a short summary of what they've um, read, which could be in any language. So even if you're summarising in your first language say like recapping a story writing an email to a friend about the story whatever whatever genre or text type is useful to you but anything that that gets them recounting it is going to really help to consolidate that understanding and it understanding is the driver of language you know we, we develop our language proficiency because we need to do things with it EAL is not somewhere where you're learning grammar abstractly in the hope of one day passing an exam, and it's, it's life, you know, it's part of your life. So, um, activities that work once that maybe aren't dependent on a specific text can be really, really helpful for um, guiding students when you haven't got those resources because you can you can use them a bit more flexibly. Graphic novels are brilliant as well, and if you've got any particularly artistic students, um, if they want to represent what happened in the story. Um, in graphic form that works too and we often don't think of things like that because we think oh well that's not language they're not focusing on the grammar and vocabulary and so on but they are focusing on the meaning and and to get that deeper meaning um you you have to you have to access the language so anything that gets them accessing meaning is going to be it's a bit of a tangent sorry but anything that gets people accessing meaning is going to be really helpful for driving understanding which is going to push them to, to get the language more. And of course, from that, if you've got time for a short conversation about it, um, to, to ask questions, what's happening in here? Okay, what do you, that's gonna layer the, the reading comprehension with that attempt to, to put it into words. And we know that oracy is the big driver of literacy. So talking about what, what people understood from a text is really helpful. Okay, it will help their understanding of that text if they go back and reread it and check details, but you know, that's not often as fun. Um, but it will really help the next thing they read as well. So one thing that's really, really helpful if you're short of really good quality resources is just to, to wrap around whatever you've got with just really good standard teaching routines. Um, getting kids to, to, to recap, to describe, or to do something with the text, whatever, whatever they've understood from it, um, get them to talk about it and then get them reading again. That's a pretty good, it's not as specific, of course, as, as having um, graded readers with activities in them and so on, but it's a good fallback, I think. Lots and lots of language production around the text is always going to help. And it, it doesn't hugely matter, by the way, if that's in first language or in English, because we know that, that there's that common underlying proficiency that, that the languages really support each other. I think just building on from what Rob said, darts activities, yeah. that's exactly the thing that would be massively helpful. So then it doesn't matter necessarily which text you're talking about, but if you can do, and there's some um, resources we've got on the website that we can put um, on the link below the podcast. Yeah. But they um, activities that ask students to kind of um, complete things that they've read about the text, sequence things, group things together, um, 
can they complete a diagram can they do some predicting all of those kind of activities it doesn't matter which text that you're working on if they can do those activities based on whichever text that you're working on that will be massively important yeah absolutely thank you hope that um helps judith um question three uh where would oh sorry wrong question uh, we have refugees arriving to our school soon have you got any pastoral resources or guidance as I'm finding it difficult to source resources? Yes. So with all, uh, within the Twinkle website, we've got um, an INA category, which is an international new arrivals category. Um, and within that category, there are EAL resources for um, refugees and asylum seekers. There are pastoral resources, um, which give suggestions and guidance um, as to how to welcome refugees and asylum seekers. I've written some um, adult guidance for specifically looking at um, EAL learners in that context, and those resources are all free. So please do go um, onto the International New Arrivals category and find those resources because they are freely available for you to download. Thank you. Um, question four. Um, I've always have a, sorry, I have an EAS, ASL child who I teach who asks for a joke at the end of each session. Um, have you got any good jokes for five to seven years old um, that are easy to understand for an ESL student? Have you got any um, dad jokes, Rob? I've got nothing but dad jokes. <laughs> but they don't, they don't land terribly well with the five to seven crowd, so I'll hand this one over to Jack. <laughs> so there are some um, good resources joke resources on our website and again we'll put the link um, below the podcast um, these jokes are, are quite good because they're illustrated so that they um, have got the visual cues to um to explain perhaps why the joke is a joke um, for students that may not have the language yet um, to understand that so I think those are really helpful in terms of what we have on our website and I'd also just suggest having I always used to have a joke book um on my desk at school <laughs> just to refer you're to never gonna know when you need it you always can do with a joke and when you're teaching children and you you and the adults around you and the children always could use a joke so yeah I'd always suggest having a having a joke book sat on your desk I certainly did <laughs> and our final one um where would experts suggest starting if a student can't speak English is able to read a few words but cannot write and has never attended school. There's a year seven pupil and a year 10 pupil they've got in their class. Listen, this is probably the, the toughest beat for an EEL lead, isn't it? Um, pupils who are coming into the education system with a radically different background to the one that the, I guess, that is anticipated in our education system. Um, I mean, one of the big priorities um, is likely to be the script. So a, a first question is, um, has that student used Roman script before? Because otherwise, um, they're going to find that that any kind of um, writing is going to be quite hard. And certainly I'm thinking here of pupils. I don't, I don't know, one, one thing I'd be thinking about is things like fine motor skills, you know, having, having worked with pupils who who really struggle to hold a pencil and ruler because they just never had any kind of educational experience where these things might be used. So that would be one question. Um, beyond that, I think, um, just think about all the things that they can do as well. So we're, we're going to see these pupils um, largely in terms of the difference between them and what's anticipated by our curriculum and the education system, our training and so on. But these kids will have lots and lots of other things they can do. So I'm thinking particularly of um, so one one pupil that I worked with particularly he was he had a very good understanding of um, things like time and distance and, and it came from his own migration journey, which involved a, a fairly perilous trip across the Sahara, and and there were frames of reference that that he could use to access the maths curriculum that he was doing actually some catch up what, what we would think of as primary maths but it wasn't for him um, and and some things that he brought into understanding some of those basic maths concepts were so different from one of the ones that 
we would have thought of. So just finding points of connection can be really valuable, but also really hard. Just remembering that, that these kids, although it won't be obvious, do bring a huge amount and we can expect, and this is a big one actually, the evidence says we can expect really rapid progress in key areas from these pupils, but in others it's going to be much, much more challenging. I think this is one we better probably approach together, Joe. so I'll, I'll hand over I to you. I think definitely, definitely build on their strengths, find out what they enjoy and, and, and go with that. I think you just need to kind of hook yourselves into their lives and connect with them and build those relationships. I remember working with um, a boy and I just had a piece of paper in front of me and I just I just started drawing because we didn't share a language and we were struggling. So I just started drawing and um, I don't know what I drew, something horrendous probably. But he um he then picked up his pencil and did the most incredible drawing, really incredible for his age. And I thought, wow, I know nothing else about you, but you are an amazing artist. And so now I know that piece of information. I have a hook and we have a connection and now we can talk and we can draw and he would laugh at my drawings and I would be in awe of his drawing. And we, our kind of relationship, I suppose, developed from, from that, from just finding out that that's what he was good at and that's what he was interested in. So then I would bring in, you know, books, we would paint, we would draw, we would, and the language, would, it would all come from there. But that was, that was the starting point for him and and I so I think definitely find out find out what strengths they have also follow what your school's um policy is and processes are and this is where hopefully your school has quite a secure embedded um induction process so that when this um happens in your school um there's a kind of um, embedded process yeah that people yeah. can follow and that everybody knows what happens I think when I um, started at my school, it was kind of on me when they'd cut, you know, Joe, Joe, we've got a new one, we've got, a new, you know, that's kind of how I started my um, EALE journey. And I soon realised very quickly with 25 teachers and one of me that that, you know, that's not sustainable, that's not how it's going to work moving forward. So I would put in lots of processes and one of them was an induction process and I'd write it all down and we'd have a, a process that everybody knew that these things would happen at these times and I would come and see these children at these points but meanwhile they could be doing this and there's this resource for them here and there's this and there's that um, and all those things that the teachers could go to and put in place before they were reliant wholly on me um, so I think if your school's got a, a process that it that it can follow then that would be massively helpful for you then you're not having to make up kind of what happens on a case by case basis um, I think that would be that would be helpful. I yeah. think that's really true. Just worth thinking about uh, those young interpreters again, peer buddies. Yeah. Um, mm. I think it's yeah. it's worth thinking about staff champions as well because it's a really good point, Joe. There's only one of you, so yeah. you know there's so much that's not just about language, about creating that welcoming environment. Um, you know what colleagues across the school are willing to take a bit of a pastoral interest, for example, and. and um, what routines have we got where everyone, you know, so your policies again, where everyone knows the few things they can do at the start of each lesson just to, mm -hmm. to help that, that young person settle in, because it must be terrifying. Um, something else that strikes me is, is just, we focus on the fact they can't speak English, but let's focus on, they do speak some language. Yes. No, so I should say a language, not, not they speak a little bit or something. Um, they do speak at least one other language and probably more. Jean Conti, who's one of my Yale heroes and was a, was mm -hmm. a teacher and Yale lead men and researcher up in Leeds, she tells this story of um, uh, telling a story, um, I think it involved a son of the moon or something, um, in her class. And, and there's this boy, a new arrival, and just like this, didn't speak any English, had just arrived and um, said nothing the whole time. And then the next day came in. He was, there's a lot of whispering between him and another boy in another language. Then he comes in the next day and presents her with this beautifully handwritten, quite long story in another language, not a language she spoke. Um, that that he, he'd obviously got the gist and understood the story and had gone home and wanted to produce something. And just like your piece of artwork, Joe, he brought back this, this fantastic story, but in another language. And you realise, of course, that this, this kid is following along a lot of what's happening and, and is able to produce things of... of you know, complexity 
um, that we wouldn't see if we only looked at the fact they couldn't speak English. So the more we can do through first language, you know, there's loads of things. Um, Google Translate is a pretty good stopgap, but but just recognising this this pupil has got a lot um, already and already speaks the language, and and maybe we should recast it. I know it's not all fair on us, but recast it. It's not saying this pupil doesn't speak English, but this is a pupil whose language I don't speak, and how can I bridge the gap between my not understanding their language, um, and and the languages they do speak. So just flip that deficit around, just as a way of thinking about it, perhaps to, to say, right, how can we how can we communicate with this young person, share the things that we know and the things that they know? Um, but apart from that, you know, it's it's slow work, but but young people with no English yet make really rapid progress, and that's that's really strongly evidenced in large-scale data as well. So we, in your Progress 8, would expect, you know, we could look at that, for example, and see really high progress for pupils. And also um, just thinking about um, the evidence from key stage assessments at all key stages. Bilingual pupils, by the time they hit an intermediate level of English, they're consistently able to outperform the national average. And that's a really surprising finding. So just, you know, we're not, our goal here is not for them to become monolingual-like in that time. Um, you start getting those gains really quickly and they amplify it and we can have really high expectations, even for, even for pupils who arrive in year seven with, with little or no English and no previous school. Um, in year 10, obviously, it's much harder. There's, there's very little school time left. But let's just think about, you know, where they're going next. Perhaps we can connect with um, further education where there'll be opportunities for further study and see it as a, as a longer journey up to 16 and then beyond 16 rather than seeing it as that hard cutoff. You know, how can we how can we support pupils to go through? Because although it's really hard and um, a lot of pupils will really struggle, we do know that effective EL practice will lead to unbelievably quick gains for these pupils, even if in some respects it's going to be very, very slow and hard progress. In others, it really won't be. Um, and I think it's just really worth holding on to that. Yeah, the evidence is there. We, we know that large numbers of young people in that situation do achieve highly. And so we've got to do everything we can to get them there. Thank you, both for your answers. Um, that's all of our questions. So I hope that helps um, those people that have sent those questions. And thank you for your questions. Um, finally, Rob, um, have you got any other research or readings that people can be looking at for um, EAL leads? Um, after listening to this podcast, what else can they be um, reading and looking into? Yes, yeah, so I think if you're if you're interested in developing uh, as an EL lead, I'd be looking at CPD, both for yourself and for others. I think all Joe's recommendations about CPD would be mine, except to say that there's a couple of uh, reviews of CPD for EL in the EL journal that's published by Nardic. Um, there's not a lot otherwise um, out there for guiding your own CPD planning. Um, and I think there's more and more being published as well. So there's a really good book around language across the curriculum that's quite useful. Um, that was Esther de Born and colleagues uh, that's focused on secondary. There's there's lots of resources coming out. I think just being part of that community, and, and that, that's probably where you're going to get the ideas. I don't think there's a great deal published that's, that focuses specifically on that role of the EAL lead, but it's, it's getting there. Thank you. Um, have you got any other top tips, Joe, or any final comments? I think just build your network, connect with mm. the people that are around you, um, reach out to your local schools um, that are in the, your trust, maybe. Um, and online as well, there's incredible networks um, online. And I think, as we discussed previously, since COVID, I think that's only um, taken off more and more so there's loads of opportunities i think sometimes you just have to spend a little bit of time seeking them out for yourself but i think if you if you sit there and take the time to do that you'll be surprised by what you can come across and what you can learn um just by doing that i've certainly done a lot a lot of that in the last couple of years um and as a result met people that i would never have you know normally met because i'd been in yeah. my school bubble or my local area and i wouldn't have you know i wouldn't have felt the need need to do that I wouldn't have been looking but um, I think there's some incredible opportunities out there and I think you just need to um, get involved and, and get connected with people around you 
Uh, we'll also be doing a Twitter live chat um, following this podcast, answering some EAL lead questions. That'll be on the 17th of March at 7.30. So more will come out on our social channels, but that'll be another opportunity to um, discuss some of these you know, ideas and follow up with some more resources. It'll be really exciting. So thank you both. If you've got to the full hour of listening to us talk about all the lead things, then thank you. Um, all our resources and ideas uh, will be in a blog um, after this podcast too, so you can find everything there. Um, and I hope that it was really helpful. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. See you soon. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by Helen Bodell from Twinkle EAL. We have over 650,000 resources and you can find all of our EAL resources at www.twinkle.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Pinterest by searching Twinkle EAL.